Good afternoon. My name is Brett. His name is Greg. Hi, Greg. I'm great. You're I'm, great. I'm great. You didn't even ask me. You always ask me. I'm great. Looking forward to uh, <laughs> our patio palooza tomorrow afternoon. That's right. From one until four. Hopefully the weather cooperates. All indications are we're in store for a beautiful afternoon. We invite you to come down, sneak out of work a little bit early as if you needed an excuse. Mm. We'll give you one. Come on down. We'd love to see you up on the rooftop. Santa Lucia Pizza, St. Mary's Road. You know exactly where it is. It's an icon in this community. We'd love to uh, say hello, shake your hand, and uh, maybe even give you a slice of pizza. I have been to that restaurant at least three times. I have never been up on the patio, so I am excited about that because it's one of those. It is one of those patios that catches your eye when you drive by. You think, oh, it'd be nice to be sitting up there. <laughs> So uh, rooftop patios are fun. So we're looking forward to that all month for the month of July. Uh, well, although next week, I it'll be you and TFJ on the patio. That's right. You're on holidays next week. That's right. So we are going to get TFJ out of the building and into the out into the world. Now, does, will he melt potentially being outside of his comfort zone in a physical fashion? That's well, I don't know. You see, the good thing with with. With him is that he often has those zip off, those pants that zip off at the knee. They're multi-purpose, right? So they're pants at work. It's like a retractable roof. Yeah, they have a retractable roof at Santa Lucia. So In case sounds it like kismet. It really does. <laughs> <laughs> so we are looking forward to that tomorrow afternoon. This afternoon, we're going to talk about virtual reality at one thirty. At two o'clock, we're going to talk about craft beer. At 2.30, we're going to talk about how it's okay to just be average with our weekly visit with Carolyn Clausen mm-hmm. from Conexus Counseling. And then at 3 o'clock, we're going to talk about some new art and design tours that are happening in our downtown. And we have passes to give away for Theory of a Dead Man and then some unfortunate vandalism in Nipawa. So we'll speak with the mayor of Nipawa at 3.30. Good rundown there, Brett. Right now, Greg, you spotted this, that Alec Baldwin cast in a role where he plays a visually impaired character in a movie called Blind. And here is just a snip of the trailer for this film. Welcome to the Beacon for the Blind. For the visually impaired, feeling is seeing, so don't be alarmed if he touches you. Suzanne Dutchman. Tough name to carry around these days, I'm sorry. He's my husband. Well, I'm sure he's nice once you get to know him. So I'll just give you the quick description of the film. A novelist blinded in a car crash, Alec Baldwin, which killed his wife, rediscovers his passion for both life and writing when he embarks on an affair with the neglected wife, played by Demi Moore, of an indicted businessman, played by Dylan McDermott. And the story at globalnews.ca says what, Mr. Gregg? Disability advocates are criticizing Alec Baldwin's new movie, Blind, for its choice for the leading role. The film starring Baldwin as a man who, as you mentioned, Brett, loses his sight in a car crash, is being criticized for not casting a disabled actor. The Ruderman Family Foundation, an organization advocating on behalf of disabled people, quote, expressed its disappointment in the casting of Alec Baldwin for the leading role of blind man Bill Oakland in the new film Blind. 
set to be released later this month, once again overlooking the opportunity to cast actors with disabilities. Jay Ruderman, president of the foundation, spoke to the Los Angeles Times about casting for the film, which will be released on July 14th. So this is interesting because, and they go on to say here, there's a quote from Jay Ruderman, who is the president of this foundation. He says, Alec Baldwin in Blind is just the latest example of treating disability as a costume. We no longer find it acceptable for white actors to portray black characters. Disability as a costume needs to also become universally unacceptable. And I can think of a couple of recent examples in films where he, he mentions the, the race situation. I remember, I can't remember what year it came out, but it was in within the last five years. The Lone Ranger. Do you remember who played Tonto? Trying to remember, was it Johnny Depp? It was Johnny Depp who played Tonto, which I can see the merit of casting Johnny Depp in that role because Johnny Depp is a great character actor, but it's in this day and age, that's no longer acceptable. And and yes, of course, they should have gone with someone of First Nations to play that character. So that seemed like a rather dated decision. And then just this year... Scarlett Johansson is cast in a film called Ghost in the Shell, which is based on Japanese manga or comic books. And the character she plays is supposed to be Japanese, but they they cast a a well-known white lady to play it in the role. And I think it actually hurt the film. I think it ended up being sort of this, that's what people focused on, was that they cast... Scarlett Johansson to play a Japanese character. So it's now actually starting to have this kind of bounce back effect where it no longer matters. Star power no longer matters. And authenticity is what people care about. And diversity is what people care about. This is a different angle that I had never thought of, disability. And I, quite frankly, don't know what to think of this. It's an interesting conversation. My first reaction, quite frankly, is like, well, he plays a, an individual who is cited at certain parts of this story. I don't know what chronology they tell the story. Yeah. I guess that doesn't really matter. But the point is that at some point in the movie, this character does have sight. So I would suspect that that would lend certain challenges to casting someone who is actually blind or sightless in this role. Because they would be then be forced to be playing someone in part of the film who does have sight. You know, someone, one of our listeners already, you're feeding back at 780-6868. Jamie Foxx, didn't Jamie Foxx win an Academy Award for his portrayal of Ray Charles in Ray? He was at the very least nominated, was he not? He was actually nominated twice that year, I believe. Because of the the song as well, was it not? the the uh, Or for two different films. Yeah, he was nominated, I believe, and because I'm pretty sure he was nominated as a supporting actor in Collateral. Uh, yeah, he was nominated, so this is goes back to 2005, where he did win Best Performance by an Actor in a Leading Role for Ray. And then he was also nominated for Best Performance by an Actor in a Supporting Role in Collateral. So that's, I wonder if that, that may be the only time that's ever happened, but that's a different conversation. But he did win. He played somebody who was visually impaired, and he was nominated, and he won for his portrayal of Ray Charles. Now, uh, Keith McCullough reminded me of a story that we did while you were away last time. And we had Doug call in. I remember Doug, Doug, who... uh, 
who is without sight, called us to uh, an interpretation of a story we were talking about animals. Doug, if you're listening today, would love to get your take on this. And also, uh, you have regular interaction with another listener who is without sight, Brett. Yes, uh, a gentleman by the name of Bruce, who has been emailing me somewhat regularly for a number of years now. And, you know, he actually... Oh, and he made a suggestion about, for example, when I mentioned what the what the temperature is, I should also mention the current conditions. And I made a pledge to him that I would start doing it, and I did start doing it, and then I forgot. So, Bruce, I'm sorry. I will try to make that a normal habit of mine. But, uh, Bruce, I would be curious to know what your thoughts are on this issue as well. What comes first? What's the merit here on your acting ability, regardless uh, are we at a point now where unless you have suffered some sort of mental illness that you are forbidden from playing someone who has some sort of mental breakdown or some sort of emotional distress? Are you now henceforth, are we only going to be able to portray uh, alcoholics with those actors who have actually been through rehab or have been drug abusers or alcoholics. I just want to know how far does this go in terms of authenticity and who we need to be offering these jobs to. I think I portray myself as fairly sensitive mm-hmm. on most things. I- I'm torn on this one a little bit because I would like, and I read this article backwards and forwards, I, I didn't hear any suggestions of any individuals who might have been qualified to play this role. I am not aware of it either. This is why this is uh, sort of a, uh, I'm almost reluctant to form an opinion because I really don't know. And I also don't know what, I know that when you are doing a film, like there are typically there, there'll be like, we never see the floor, but often there's tape all over the floor because you have to take three steps and then stop here. Hit your mark. And you have to look over here and you have to do this. I don't know what kind of challenges that would create. And I don't want to, but I'm also reluctant to even say that because I don't want to suggest that because you're visually impaired, you are incapable of doing this. That, of course, it would be a complete falsehood. That's not what I'm getting at. I just don't know what sort of challenges that would create for the filmmaking process. So we have somebody on the line here. What did Forte? What? I think, okay. I think Doug's actually called in. Okay. Doug, we're going to go to Doug. Thank you so much for calling in. Doug is the visually impaired listener that uh, Greg was referring to. Thanks for reaching out to us, Doug. What do you think I, of all this? Actually, for me, you know, it's not a big deal. Um, and I just need to help you out a little with your terminology because you guys are in the middle uh, correct. Uh, if you talk about impaired, that assumes somebody can see a little bit. Mm-hmm. You talk about somebody who is blind, it's like me, lights out, gone, finished, kaput. Um, ah, Doug, uh, you know what, Doug, I'm sorry. Jeff, and then Jeff's busy right now. Uh, Jeff, if you can get Doug's phone number and try him again, and we'll get him after the break because his phone was cutting out there and we would like to get him on. Uh, so, Paul, this, this, maybe this is a byproduct of, of being afraid to not be politically correct. Here I am saying visually impaired. Yeah. I thought that was what you're supposed to say. Doug's saying, no, no, no. There's blind and there's visually impaired. He, Doug says he's blind. So we'll talk to Doug a little bit after the break. And Tiffany, I also see you on the line. We will speak to you as well. We're talking about how Alec Baldwin's new film, Blind, is being criticized for casting Alec Baldwin, an actor who is not blind, in a role where his character is blind. 
Want to know what you think about that? We're going to have a look at your forecast. 204-780-6868 is the number to call and the number to text. And we will get to Doug and Tiffany after your forecast up next. We uh, endeavor to ensure that our, our call quality is uh, is what it needs to be in order for us to have a proper discussion. Doug is waiting on the line. Doug is blind. We are talking about the movie Blind. Alec Baldwin has been cast at the as the lead character. In fact, the movie comes out July 14th, so it's been shot. And uh, there's some criticism being launched at the fact that Alec Baldwin was cast in this role in spite of him being fully sighted. So, and, no, sorry, Greg. I, th- <laughs> I thought you were done. <laughs> Doug, what do you think? Well, uh, as, I sa- as I said earlier before my phone got sick, um, I don't have a big issue with it. First of all, I don't know what the movie is about. Obviously, I know one thing. The person at one time was sighted. So any person who was blind who would play that character would have to be able to um, act as a sighted person. And if a person is congenitally blind, that might be difficult because, for example, I don't have eye movement. You know, they don't work. They're gone. I've never used them. They're in my head, but they don't do anything. They just kind of hang out there. Um, so really, I sometimes people just want to beat a drum to make noise, you know? And um, I've gone through life. I'm 70 years old. Uh, all of my friends, except maybe one or two, are fully sighted. And, you know, in terms of getting any help from anything, uh, they've been the most helpful, not my blind friends, because for the most part, I'm probably more capable. I do carpentry, I do cooking, the whole bed. So um, this whole idea that you have to be one to know one makes me kind of ill sometimes. It's just annoying, and it just acts as a barrier. Now, Doug, uh, let me ask you this. Doug, sorry to interrupt you, but let me just quickly ask you this. I And I don't know the chronology of this film, as Greg and I have, have alluded to. We don't know how much of this film, or where Baldwin, Alec Baldwin... Uh, is is playing someone still with sight. Let's say, for example, his character used to have sight, but as we see him in the film, he's blind all the way through. So if that's the case, should they have looked at an actor who actually is blind? Yeah, that would be a different consideration because there's no there's no attempt to force the blind person to fake that he can see. You know, so that, to me, would be a different aspect. But... Um, even that, to me, is not a major one. Um, look, um, I, I worked for the government for years, and I didn't get hired because I was blind. I got hired because I won the competition, and that's the way I want to live. You know, um, there's not much more I can say than, than what I've said, really. Well, Doug, we thank you so much for calling in and uh, sharing your thoughts on this. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks a lot for the time. All right, Doug. Take care, and we'll hopefully we'll talk again soon. Tiffany has been waiting patiently as well at 204-780-6868. Tiffany, uh, thanks for your patience, and what do you think of this? Well, I think the first thing we have to consider is what the role is, definitely. I mean, at the end of the day, the movie business is just that, a business. And in your example for the movie about Ray Charles, you said Jamie Foxx was cast, and he was, but you wouldn't catch necessarily a... Whoa. Sorry, my, I'm in my truck, and the buzzer's going off. <laughs> okay. Play-by-play courtesy of Tiffany. Sorry, sorry about that. That's okay. Go and, ahead. Uh, but you wouldn't necessarily cast 
a white actor in that role just because they were blind. Fair point. There's so many aspects. Ray Charles was a singer. He was African-American. And he was blind. So what do you look for? All right, Tiffany, thanks for your feedback. We do very much appreciate it. And we appreciate the play-by-play as your truck was uh, making all sorts of noise at you. Really a great point, right? The idea is not only, there are several components to playing Ray Charles. Mm -hmm. Uh, The color of your skin may be one. Uh, whether you are blind or sightless or or not is another factor. But also, hello, Ray Charles is one of the greatest singers uh, of his era. Jamie Foxx, one of the best singers of his era, believe it or not. He's incredibly gifted vocally. He's shown that off several times over mm-hmm. the last several years. Also a critical component of portraying Ray Charles. Let's go to, is it Conan? Okay, Conan is at 204-780-6868. You'll get the last word on this, Conan. What do you think? Uh, yeah, you know, this story is just reminding me of an interview that you guys had with uh, a Native actor, I think, months ago. And I, I, I think I remember him saying something along the lines that he he doesn't want to be or didn't want to be in, in roles where he has to wear a loincloth. And I'm just thinking, well, here's this role that Alec Baldwin is playing. Uh, why... Why, like, why should we assume that blind people only want into, only want to be in roles where they have to be blind? You know, you see where I'm coming from. I think I think it's an interesting point. I think it was Jeff Courier visiting with Adam Beach who said that uh, just yeah, a few yeah. weeks ago, and Adam Beach, of course, incredibly accomplished. But but part of his road. Uh, to being the accomplished actor that he is, regardless of his heritage, uh, has it started out as him taking type cast ro- roles, and unfortunately, that's part of it. But I like that perspective uh, of of the other side. Is is why does someone with any sort of disability need to be pigeonholed? Uh, by Hollywood or society in general. Thank you so much for the feedback. We were just wondering if maybe the pendulum is starting to swing a little bit too far. Diversity is important, and I think that uh, since the Oscars So White movement a couple of years ago, we are now seeing Hollywood try to make more effort to to diversify their cast, and it genuinely does have, I think, a positive effect. I concur. Uh, But at the same time, uh, with this situation where Alec Baldwin is playing a blind character, again, I'd have to see the movie to to see how much of it where he actually is playing himself as somebody with sight before he becomes blind. Um, I don't know what to think of this. I really don't. So we appreciate the feedback at 204-780-6868. Up next, we're talking virtual reality with Do VR. Before we move on to our next topic of conversation, Brett, I know there were a couple of emails and and uh, comments that you wanted to pass along on our last discussion about the movie Blind with Alec Baldwin. Some people are up in arms about the fact that Baldwin has been cast at the, as as this character who loses his sight becomes blind. Uh, been a lot of good points about this, including one. About Robert Downey Jr., mm. Tropic Thunder, the movie from 2009 in which Baldwin actually received, Baldwin, Downey Jr. actually received an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor. And in that film, he he played a white actor who was cast in a black role in this film that they were shooting, and he was 
his even his co-characters were saying he knows he's not black, right? Because he was kind of Daniel Day Lewising it. He was method acting. He was in character this whole time. So Tropic Thunder was was a heavy satire, a really in-your-face satire that was meant to subvert a lot of this stuff. But I think it was just teetering on the edge of what's tasteful, and for in many cases, it quite frankly wasn't tasteful but that's an excellent point and then miguel sent an email which reminded me of something else that i had thought of but forgot to say so miguel thank you and he says isn't acting just that it's acting actors are always portraying someone else in this case alec baldwin an actor a good one is portraying someone who is blind so i don't know that i have a problem with this but I'd have to see the movie and formulate an opinion from there. We do thank you for all the feedback, though. Lots of text messages and calls on this, so thanks. We appreciate it very much. We, we never know how these discussions and how these topics are going to go over with you, so we appreciate you engaging in a sincere fashion. Uh, Brett, you're into video games a little bit, I guess. Technology more so than me. Let's put it that way. Although I've been kind of dragged into the video, back into the video game thing by the by the boys, mm. uh, it's incredible what these machines can do. Well, I uh, I should point out the, the the last video game system that I owned or bought was the Nintendo sixty four. So I'm a little behind the times, but okay, I, I'm ahead of you then. <laughs> yeah, in terms of the technology in my house, what do you have? The PS four? No, the we have Wii and the Wii the Wii U. Okay, uh, yeah, the PS four. I'm a I'm horrified to bring into my house because they have all the sports games. Oh, no. Yeah, you you may never see me again. (laughs) Okay. Well, there is something that is now open in Winnipeg at Sterling Line Parkway, 555 Sterling Line Parkway. It's at the Outlet Mall, and it is called Do VR, Winnipeg's best virtual reality experience and we are joined in studio by the sales manager for do vr ali urbanovich i'm saying that right yes. do vr yes okay so thank you for joining us by the way one of the reasons why we wanted to look at this is a couple of months back we went out to the manitoba public insurance complex on plessy's and they had unveiled their new virtual reality uh simulator mm-hmm. and i got to try it and it it blew my mind and it was just sort of a simulator. I wasn't, I was kind of involved, but I was, I mean, I got to drive a car, but it wasn't a whole lot of, there wasn't really, it wasn't a game that you are, this is, a, you're all about games and you have a tournament coming up. So I guess, why don't we start with that? It's the Space Pirate Trainer Tournament. Sure. Uh, so it's going to be on July 14th, which is next Friday. We're running it from 2.30 to 8.30 p.m. Um, it's taking place in store. It's our one of our more popular games called Space Pirate Trainer. So it's like an arcade shooter, kind of like Star Wars ish. Oh You're on a platform shooting robots in space. You get a shield. They're shooting back at you. It's tons of fun. Um, yeah, and we're hosting a big tournament. It's going to be awesome. Now I was worried I was doing this an injustice by starting out talking about video games, but this is the next version of video gaming, right? This idea of being completely immersed in another world. Absolutely. Yeah, it's completely, completely different than video games. So tell us how it's different. It's rather than video games, you're, you're sitting and you're looking at a screen, right? This, you're in it. You're a part of it. You're part of the action or whatever it is that you're doing, whether you're traveling the world or you're face-to-face with zombies, you're, you feel like you're physically there. In the early 1990s, virtual reality started to become a thing. I actually remember going to the convention center and, and trying it out. 
but it was, I think it was, I don't know if it was just too expensive or if the technology just wasn't there. Greg, you also may remember a film called The Lawnmower Man. Which, I do. That had a lot of VR sort of components involved. And it seemed like that was the next big thing. And then it just kind of disappeared. And now in the last five years or so, it's come back hard. Why? I guess that's just the way that things are going, right? Like everything is moving towards the more technology, everything. So it's just the next thing. How does it work in terms of like having something so close to your eyes? You know, when we're kids, we're always told, don't sit so close to the TV. (laughs) And yet here's a virtual reality headset that's two inches in front of your face. Hadn't thought about that, Brad. You know what? I honestly never thought about that either. Uh, It's definitely, it's something to get used to when you first try it. It's... It's a little bit overwhelming because you don't know what to expect. You don't know what's actually going to be happening. But once you get into it and you try it, it's you're honestly like addicted. It's awesome. <laughs> now, one of the different and other terminologies for virtual reality is augmented reality. And I went to, I've been to Disneyland a few times, and I guess it would have been 91 would have been the first time that I was there when Star Tours was unveiled. And of course, you get in a, in a capsule and... There is a giant screen, and so you're sort of in it. You're in the ride, but in terms of the video and the movements of the capsule that you're in, I can remember having a gigantic argument with our family. Well, how high do you think we actually go, and how much movement is actually involved? And in reality, it's very little. Yes. But, of course, the the way the video is shot and the way the, the capsule tips and moves very subtly, it gives you the feeling of something else. Well, now they've gone to these roller coasters, full-size roller coasters, where they're augmenting the reality, not only of these giant super speed roller coasters, but they're putting virtual reality <laughs> headsets on you to trick you and to take you somewhere else completely. So this technology has incredible reach, and the things they're doing with it is is astounding. It's oh, it's absolutely amazing. I before jumping on board with do VR, I had never tried VR before. I'm not a gamer. I'm nope, not really. And now I'm absolutely obsessed with this technology. What is it about it you like so much? It's just so real. <laughs> it's hard to explain if you haven't actually experienced it, but it's it's so real. I I think video games are kind of boring. Honestly, I don't really get the point. You're just sitting looking at a screen. This you you feel like there's an objective because. You, I'm, I'm able to get so far into it that I really have no idea what else is going on. To me, I'm actually shooting zombies in the face. Like, it's, it's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> so for somebody who has, has never been, never seen a virtual reality headset, never been sort of introduced to this technology, what can they expect if they find themselves in do VR? What sort of equipment are you going to arm them with? Uh, well, the equipment that we use is called the HTC Vive. Um, so you get your headset, you get headphones and controllers, and the controllers become your hands or your weapons or whatever it is that your experience entails. We set you up with everything. We give you a short tutorial, too, if you've never experienced it before. Uh, we're pretty much there to be your support if you're confused or uncomfortable. Whatever's going on, we're there with you the whole way. So what sort, what size of room am I in when I'm conducting this adventure? Sure. So we have six, like, eight-by-eight cubicles, if you will. It's just a small room um, with a curtain. We call them pods. And you are your entire thing takes place there. Most people will take off the headset and be like, this happened right here? That's crazy. 
So, and it, it is completely immersive. Like, it's a headset that blocks out all of your vision. Yes. You don't see or you can't see or hear anything outside your experience. Well, you can't hear anything no. else so either. So, like, we tap you on the shoulder or we shout. That's why I say my job is to shout at people and play games all day. It's great. <laughs> I love that idea. So, you know, this technology is obviously growing by leaps and bounds. Yes. It's on the uh, the consumer market. I can use this at home. Why Why wouldn't I just do this at home, Allie? I guess you you get the experience when you come in, right? Like we, the staff are all so excited about it. We want you to try this. We want to play with you. We'll jump in a pod and play two player against you. It's It's not something that's necessarily practical for most consumers right now because it is very expensive and you need the computer technology to back it up. So this just gives everybody and anybody an affordable chance to come and try it. Whether you want to shoot zombies in the face or explore the worlds, you can do anything. Ali Urbanovich is the sales manager at Do VR, which is at 555 Sterling Lion Parkway in the Outlet Collection Mall. That's correct. You're in the Outlet Collection yeah. Mall? Okay. So, well, let's. You, you just sort of alluded to the, the zombies and the different things. So, on your website, uh, under the experiences, you talk about some of the, uh, the different things that you can try. So, what is, uh, you have something here called Breach It. What's that? Uh, Breach It is our, we just added it. Um, it's like a tactical team shooter kind of idea where it's a it can be up to a three versus three. So you're put onto two different teams, you grab your weapons, and you're put into two different areas, if you will. So you have to grab your weapons, you can reinforce the walls with steel, you can shoot through the walls to break them down, and your objective is to shoot the other team. So obviously these are smart games, right? They understand what it is that you're doing yes. and allows you to take the next step. <laughs> It's overwhelming to see where these games have come, yeah, right? <laughs> I mean, even when you are playing on television and you can have their headset, you can play against people that are not even, never mind in your house, not even in your own country, right? You right. can play uh, against people all across the world. Is that something that'll be an option at some point where you'll be able to not necessarily play against people who are in pods at your physical location, but might be able to play with somebody Cross the world at some point? Oh, absolutely. It already is. Um, like, we, we have a couple games that are played through online servers. So if you jo join a public room, you're playing mm -hmm. with other people who are playing the same game, and they could be anywhere. Cool. So just like we can connect the pods and you can talk to each other, like the room over, you can talk to the other players who are playing elsewhere across the world. What's Arizona Sunshine? Arizona Sunshine is our most popular game. It's a zombie shooter that takes place in the desert. It's a post-apocalyptic game it's absolutely outrageous uh there's two different modes you can do campaign where you're actually clearing checkpoints and having to like hunt for things i guess look for clues uh or there's horde mode where you're just the zombies keep coming and you just keep shooting them you're just firing at will <laughs> yeah yeah uh I'm just sorry. I'm just looking at the the rest of the experiences. There's one where it it kind of looks like it's reminiscent of Tom Cruise hanging off of the building in Mission Impossible Four. Uh, I think it looks like it's called uh, just VR Extreme Multiplayer Climbing. What's climby. that? Yes, Climbing. It's uh, we describe it as an obstacle course, if you will, because um, that one can be played with as many people. It's online as well. You're climbing the walls and jumping, and that's it. You're jumping. It's crazy. So you get people that are getting dragged in either by their kids or their their friends, and they're super skeptical All about the, time. the experience. Every single day. Tell us about uh, one of the biggest turnarounds you might have you might have witnessed. I honestly like it's it, people like me who don't know 
really anything who didn't know anything about this or aren't gamers. It's I'm so excited about it and I can't wait to share it with people. So they come out and they're like, yep, this was great. Thank you for suggesting this. We're going to continue our chat in a moment with Ali Urbanovich, who is a sales manager at Do VR. They're at the Outlet Collection Mall on Sterling Lion Parkway. And uh, it looks like it's actually not even that expensive. If you want to go try it out for a half hour, it's 25 bucks. You know, I can think of things that are a lot more expensive than this, especially considering the technology that you're getting access to when you go here. So we'll continue our chat about virtual reality after your forecast, which is up next. We are doing virtual reality on the radio this <laughs> afternoon, at least as close as we can get. We're going to have to come down and check this out. Brett McGarry, Greg Mackling with you through until 4 o'clock. We're, we're talking about a tournament that's coming up at a, at a new location, something called Do, D-O-V-R, Space Pirate Trainer Tournament. It takes place July 14th. How can people get involved, Allie? Uh, you can get involved by visiting our website. There's information on there. You can give the store a call or you can email us at dovrwpg at icloud.com. And the website is simply dovr.ca. And right there on the homepage, you'll see the information for a space pirate trainer. And one of the things I wanted to ask you, and I know Greg wants to ask you as well about the Google Earth VR. I'll just quickly ask you this because when I did the the VR simulator at MPI, their Driver X uh, software, once the the car, quote unquote, that I was sitting in started moving, I could I felt I almost got sick. It, there was an initial whoa because I knew I wasn't moving, but I felt so clearly like I was moving. So do people come to do VR and and get sick? The the instance of motion sickness is so very minimal. I have literally seen it once since we've been opened. Uh, since we opened, um, everything is so very well calibrated and it tracks you so closely that motion sickness pretty much doesn't happen. Good. So talk a little bit more about this Google Earth VR and what I'm able to experience. I'd like to travel, but, you know, sometimes the budget's a little limited, but that doesn't mean I don't like to play around on Google Earth. How does this at Do VR enhance uh, an experience in terms of exploring Google Earth? So I'm sure everybody ever has done Google Earth on their computer, just messing around. Uh, it's the same, but it's so much better because it's 3D. You get in there and the Earth is in front of you. And you can literally, you can change the background to be stars or nighttime or a sunset. And you can zoom in and navigate anywhere in the world. We have a lot of people that are like, oh, I've been to the Grand Canyon. Can I go there and look? Sure, absolutely. You can type it in and it'll take you there and take you on a little tour and you feel like you're flying above the Grand Canyon. Oh, they have those uh, incredible experiences. Disney has one and I know they're popping up around North America, the wings over or the fly over where you sit in kind of a stackable seat. It's almost like a roller coaster, but it's quite stationary. And the screen is gigantic. It's about 270 degrees. And you feel like you're flying over at uh, Disney. It's flying over California. It is something else. So this would be a similar thing just with that headset on. Yeah, it's it's nice, too, because you can control it. So you can control how fast you're going. Mm. So if you're dizzy or not feeling it, you can go a little bit slower. You're completely in control of it. Very cool. Do you folks host, uh, like, let's say, for example, I mean, it's summertime. So, uh, it's you know, stag season, bachelor party season. Do you guys host uh, parties? Yeah, absolutely. We offer group rates for groups of three or more, um, depending on the amount of time and how many players we definitely do group rates. Is there a maximum? Uh, Well, we have six pods, so six people at a time is 
best, but we can accommodate, honestly, whatever the person wants to do, we'll make it work for them. You got a party room? We don't, but we will f- make the store appropriate for a party. I love it. I love the way you're thinking. Uh, by the way, we just got this text at 7806868. Lights are out west and eastbound. Portage Avenue at Cavalier out in the Unicity area. Police are in attendance, but it's slow going. Thanks, Michaela. So just before we wrap up then, uh, I guess one final pitch here for do VR to somebody who, who might think, well, I might get vertigo or I don't know. It just seems like kind of a fad to me. What uh, would you say to somebody who is on the fence about it all? Just try it. Just try it. There's, we have something that will interest everyone, I'm sure. It's, you got to just try it. What separates here? I'll ask you one, another question. What what makes v- this kind of VR different than uh, a standard arcade? Is it the fact that you're so immersed in the game? Yes, and you're instead of like putting quarters in a machine to play your different games, you just pay one rate and you can do you can navigate your time however you want. So your twenty five dollars can get you all the experiences, or if you just like one, you can you're in control. You do whatever you want. Feels like we've been talking about the possibilities of virtual reality for. 25 years already. I remember an episode of Mad About You where Paul Reiser was trying to be convinced to invest in virtual reality technology. It seems as though maybe we're finally at a point now where this is accessible and people can uh, gain some benefits of this uh, on a grand scale. Definitely. There's uh, there's multiple systems available to the public and some that are more consumer friendly, if you will. Um, ours in particular is... The, the higher end of it, so that's why we want everybody to be able to come and get the experience with it. We'll have to go try and check this out sometime, Greg. So, Ali Urbanovich, thank you for paying us a visit today. Thank you guys so much. Ali is the sales manager at Do VR. Once again, they have their first ever tournament, the Space Pirate Trainer Tournament, coming up next Friday, July 14th from 2.30 to 8.30. Once again, they are located at 555 Sterling Line Parkway in the Outlet Mall. Once again, dovr.ca for more information. Um, we may be, speaking of virtual reality, as we did for the last half hour, we might be in reality, reality heaven for Brett McGarry in the next half hour or so. <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> Seriously, man. I'm not trying to perpetuate any sort of stereotypes about you, Brett. <laughs> but if there's one thing I know, uh, you, you like a fine-tasting beer. I, I do. I do enjoy beer. And uh, that's why we decided to, because we, we read so many sponsor tags here at the station, right? I mean, we concert announcements, Theory of a Dead Man, for example. But there's one that we have been reading for the last few weeks, and it's about this craft beer coast to coaster through the liquor marts. So I thought, why don't we actually just do something on that? So in studio, we have with us Aaron Alblas who is resident craft beer expert among the product ambassadors for Manitoba Liquor and Lotteries, and it's the Craft Beer Coast to Coaster program. So, Aaron, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. First of all, what exactly is this Craft Beer Coast to Coaster initiative that you've had for the last few weeks? Yeah, so we have something that happens. uh, It's happened for the last three summers. It's the third edition of what we call Coast to Coaster. Uh, It's a craft beer promotion that highlights just the diversity of craft beer from Canadian breweries. I believe this year we have nine provinces and territories represented. The goal is always to get 12. It can be a little hard sometimes, but uh, they get released eight beer uh, every two weeks through the months of June and July. So 32 beer that have never before been in the province of Manitoba. 
And what you're getting is summer style, something for everyone, uh, some multi beer, some lagers, some hoppy beer, which I understand, Brett, uh, you, you can give or, give or take sometimes, uh, and as well, some flavored beer. So what I've done is I've actually brought um, some products from Flight 3 and Flight 2, because we're in Flight 3 right now, um, for us to try and, and maybe start discussing about beer. You know, Aaron, you and I were speaking off air about this uh, love affair people are starting to have with beer. And I was explaining to you and sharing with you my experience with wine and how in the Okanagan Valley, uh, it's such a big part of the economy right now. Not only the wineries themselves, but people traveling from all across North America, all over the world, really, to to adventure through the Okanagan Valley, go to the different wineries to enhance your knowledge of of not only the geographical uh, gem that is the Okanagan Valley, but also to learn more about wine, about why it is that we like certain types of wine. And I also commented to you that here in Manitoba, I think we've been a little bit late to the game in terms of embracing the vast number of beers that are out there. And here we are. And so we are genuinely interested, if you're a consumer, in educating yourself as to, you know, Brett says, I don't really like hoppy beer. Is that blasphemy? We'll learn from you, I suppose, in just a few moments. But the the bottom line is people are fascinated to taste beers from other places. Our palates are opening up to the idea that there's more than just three kinds of beer available. Yeah, you know what? There are more than, than you know, just a few types of beer. And, and ultimately, um, if you break down the types of beers, the styles of beer that exist, you can actually go back to just two styles, lagers and ales. And the way they differ is in how the yeast reacts, the type of yeast that's used during fermentation. And then from there, you look at the other components, right? So we have water, malt, hops, and yeast. The different flavors uh, that you that you cultivate in the brewing process, the different methods you use can all create unique and different styles that way. So really, there's an endless possibility for beer styles, but really it comes back down to lagers or ales. And if we're referencing the Coast to Coaster promotion, we have a mix of lagers and ales, some flavored beer, some hoppy beer, some malty beer, which we can we can talk about those terms in a little bit, um, to appeal to everyone, right? So not only to, to provide uh, an assortment for, you know, the beer aficionado, the guy or girl who really is into their craft beer and can, you know, see something on the shelf and know what it's going to taste like. But we also wanted to provide a little bit of a mixed bag uh, for each of the, the four flights, so that if, you know, you were going to a backyard barbecue, um, you know, Father's Day just passed, it was a great opportunity to pick up eight different beer, wherever you're going. And if you want to try some new beer, if you pick up the eight different beers in the flight, not one of them is going to taste the same. Mm. Well, and I think one of the reasons why I, I, I've taken an interest in this, I, and I certainly don't claim to consider myself an expert in any sort of way, but my very first experience with alcohol uh, and in, in terms of consuming a fair amount of it was when I was uh, was actually eighteen. I was kind of a late bloomer, and uh, I was I think it was Labatt Genuine Draft, which doesn't even exist anymore. Labatt right? Genuine Draft that was some crap beer there. And I was uh, so I mean I didn't particularly enjoy it when I was drinking it, and of course I was violently sick at about five in the morning, and that was that was all I could do of beer for like even the smell of it was would make me nauseous for. Several years, but I think it was because it was that particular style of your basic run-of-the-mill kind of domestic beer. And I don't say that with as a criticism, but that's just what I thought beer was. I figured all beer kind of tasted like that. And then uh, I was at the King's Head. I would frequent the King's Head, and I usually would drink rum. And they said, look, we've got like 30 beers on tap. Surely there's something here that you will like. And eventually I just kind of went down the line. 
and found one that I liked, which was Hogarden, or uh, you can correct me, it's actually Hoogarden, right? Hoogarden, Hogarden. Okay, I prefer to say, I just, it's tomato, feels, tomato. feels weird saying Hoogarden. I'll have a Hoogarden, please. It's a delicious Belgian ale. And uh, so from there, I, I that's sort of helped me kind of branch out a little bit. So that's why I really like this. Uh, so I'm going to try some here. This first one that I poured, you handed me the can. I'll just come back to the microphone here. You handed me the can. It's Steamworks. Oh, man, great packaging. Steamworks Killer Cucumber Ale. Mm-hmm. There's... <laughs> It's very steampunky. It's actually a cucumber shaped like a killer whale, Greg. I'll pass you the can so you can see it. And he's got all sorts of gears and stuff. <laughs> That's um, fantastic. It looks like somebody may have had a few of those before designing it the It looks packaging. like it might have been uh, at Curios. Uh, might have been something you might have found at Curios. Cabinet of Curiosities. So this is a beer that is available during this up until July 12th as part of flight number three in the Coast to Coaster craft beer revolution. All right, here we go. So Flight 1 started June 1st um, with eight uh, different beer as well. Flight 2, middle of June, up until beginning of July. Now we're in Flight 3. And something I'd like to stress is these products are available while quantities last. We've kind of planned for a run of two weeks per beer. Some sell out more quickly. Some still hang around, which is great if you find a favorite. Um, To bring it back to Steamworks, uh, a unique summer style in terms of craft beer movement is is flavoring beer, okay? So the main ingredient that's used to flavor beer, which we'll talk about a little later, I'm assuming, is hops, right? But from that point, you can really use anything else legally that you can add, you know, under CFI regulation to flavor beer. Sure. In this case, cucumber, which is kind of a trend that we've seen. Cucumber, grapefruit, berries, those are all common. Pumpkin in the fall, right? So you're kind of getting where I'm going. You can use fruit, vegetables, spices, herbs, teas. Really, there's endless possibilities, in this case, uh, for Coast to Coaster, we're seeing uh, cucumber beer as a trend, grapefruit, uh, berry as well. We had a raspberry in Flight 1. And what it's offering is just a different dimension, right? Ideally, it should be beer first, so well-made beer showing sure. the four components of, of malt, hops, uh, barley, and yeast. But then there's also this pleasant aftertaste. It's refreshing, right? Like the cucumber, it's not it quite as cold is. as I'd like. I'd encourage your listeners to really chill that one down. Um, but it just goes back to the promotion. All the styles are really meant to be, you know, fun in the summer. Well, Blue Moon is one of the more popular beers in the United States, and that's got sort of a citrus uh, style to it. And in fact, most places that you get it, they'll serve it with an orange wedge on the on the mug itself. And so this has been a trend for a little while now to to change the the aftertaste is is the big thing, isn't it, Aaron? Well, you know what? It, maybe aftertaste, I'd say it's there's certain ingredients you finish? can add no? to beer to showcase beer, right? But right. definitely add some complexity to the finish. Certain ingredients will add body. Um, earlier, you were talking about places that, that people can learn about beer. Uh, I would encourage them to go to uh, www.liquormarts.ca. Uh, there's a learning tab. We offer courses on wine, beer, and spirits, uh, myself and the other three product ambassadors. And you know what else I tell people? Go to the tap rooms. Go to the local tap rooms, right? Go there, experiment, play, because, you know, they're going to have their core core beer that they produce, and then they're also going to have the beer that they have fun with. And that's sometimes when you can see different plays on styles or, or maybe, you know, some wacky ingredients or different methods that really, you know, add that complexity that you were talking about. Um, beer first, but you can really cultivate a lot of flavor. So I'd encourage people to go to the website, liquormarts.ca, and also go to your local tap room and, and ask some questions. Well, there goes back to the term, uh, you know, don't knock it until you try it. I remember I decided to, to take a, I was walking through the LC at on Grant Avenue, and I just 
said, I'm going to tour Germany today. So I grabbed a basket and I just grabbed five or six beers from Germany. And I got home and I had no idea that it was like I, I, when I poured it, it looked like I had I, it was Welch's grape juice or something. It turned out to be a cherry beer. And I thought, well, that's kind of weird. And it was delicious. So I never had you said, you want to try a cherry beer? I would probably say no, thanks. But because I happened to buy it by accident, I'm like, well, I'll give it a shot. And it was delicious. Yeah, or cucumber beer like we just tried, right? Um, it's it, interesting with some of these ingredients because like you say, um, Brett, hey, you want to try a cucumber beer? It doesn't necessarily have that, you know, uh, appeal. But uh, when you taste it, it's very refreshing. And I would encourage people to approach uh, some of the different styles of beer with an open mind. If you're a little more traditional, if you like kind of, um, you know, simple, refreshing, light, kind of the grass cutting beer, the cottage beer, uh, the hot weather beer, lagers are very good for that because uh, they tend to be lighter in flavor. If you're looking to experiment, if you're looking to try different things, you know, maybe you want to get into some of the hoppier beer. Maybe you want to get into some things like Imperial Stouts, flavored beer. Uh, it really depends on on what your taste is. But if you're trying new things, I would encourage you to think of the context that you're drinking them in. Mm. Because uh, we were talking about wine earlier. Yes. And, you know, beer and food pairing is, is just as serious. Yeah. I okay. mean, uh, I've heard some arguments beer and cheese is, is better than wine and cheese. Because uh, essentially beer is liquid bread, liquid cracker, right? Ultimately. I like the way um, you're thinking. Yeah. And you know what? I, <laughs> I usually can't take my mind off food. Anyone else notice that? <laughs> it's almost like when you're drinking a beer, you're talking about your next beer. When I'm having a meal, I'm thinking of my next meal. Yeah, that, that is ironic. Yes. That, that is typically what we do. And you also mentioned, just to tie it back to the wine conversation we were having and tie it into the local tap rooms, because Brett and I, I think, have been outstanding ambassadors for the new tap rooms, as has Kevin Bergen, the main ingredient here on 680 CGOB. We know it's not just about exploring the wine, and you mentioned it off air, the economic impact of having healthy cottage industries, whether it's the wine in the Okanagan or beer here in Manitoba, it is measurable. You want to support local, right? I mean, ideally, that's that's just something me personally as Aaron um, that I like to do. I like to support local businesses. Um, but what a lot of people don't realize is, is when a brewery, when a winery, um, when a facility like that production facility opens up, there is quite a ripple effect of an economic impact, right? Like these are jobs for Manitobans. Um, you know, there, there's Prairie Gem hops in, in Nipawa. Uh, these breweries are buying from, from Prairie Gem. Uh, you know, it's, it's a far reaching effect. I, I use the term ripple. There's multiple stakeholders that are touched mm-hmm. by, you know, the, the impact of opening a brewery. Uh, everything from tourism, you talked about us catching up to maybe some of the um, Western markets for craft beer and, and Eastern markets. And uh, we, we just recently had the Flatliners Beer Festival, which happened in June, record attendance, record amount of participants. So you're seeing kind of this, this tourism, this industry, this hospitality, uh, just to name a few that are all touched by, you know, an interest in local beer and then also the availability um, to try new things through promotions such as Coast to Coaster at Liquor Marts and also channel partners. You can get these beer at hotel beer vendors and some rural liquor vendors as well. And then also the tap rooms, right? It's fun. It's cool. We'll continue our chat with Aaron Alblas, who is a resident craft beer expert among the product ambassadors for Manitoba Liquor Marts. And we're talking about the craft beer revolution coast to coaster. It's on until July 31st. You can just walk into any liquor mart and you will see the various flights of beer. And we have a bunch of them in studio. I just finished my sample of the Steamworks Cucumber. And my goodness, the Killer Cucumber Ale. What an interesting beer. Under normal circumstances, oh, I turned off my microphone to move it. I, under normal circumstances, I would have turned you down. 
of an offer. It is delightful. I am very surprised. I would never sit down and eat a plate full of cucumbers. I may sit down and consume several glasses full of cucumber beer, however. We'll check your forecast up next. I'm Brett McGarry. He is Greg Mackling. Our guest is Aaron Alblas. He is a resident craft beer expert with the Manitoba Liquor Marts as one of their product ambassadors, and we are talking about the Canadian craft beer revolution, Coast to Coaster, which has been on for a few weeks now, and it's on until July 31st, where you can experience craft beers from across Canada, and Aaron has brought a number of beers, which are all sort of hoppy, and we've mentioned it a couple of times now, Aaron, that I, I don't really like hoppy beers, and I should I should clarify that by saying I don't like beers that are Super hoppy. I like uh, beers that are of the Belgian white variety. So, like we mentioned, Hogarden Torque has a great one. The uh, the witty Belgian uh, Fort Gary did a wonderful uh, Belgian white a couple of years ago. But I also like uh, Sleeman Honey Brown and their local version of that, which is I think superior, which is Little Brown Jug. So that's the kind of that's sort of how I roll with the beer when it gets, starts to get too hoppy. A friend of mine actually described it in a way that I agree. He says, it tastes like hatred. I kind of sort of, that's where I sort of feel when a beer gets a little too hoppy. What is it with craft beer and hops? Like, oh, it's 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 all about the hops. Is that, uh, is that a trend that seems to be true? Or what do you think of that? So I'd say the biggest trend in, in craft beer is, is IPA, India Pale Ale, which is a hoppier style. And, and from there, you can kind of extrapolate it into, um, for example, in Flight 3, I brought uh, Ferning Brewing, uh, which is a great brewery out of BC, tends to, to have a hoppy flair to all their beer. I brought a beer called uh, Hit the Deck, the New England IPA, Northeast style IPA. Uh, also brought from Flight 2, Category 12, Insubordinate Session IPA. Um, just like to remind listeners that they can they can experience Coast to Coaster at uh, select liquor marts and also at hotel beer vendors and rural liquor vendors across the province. Um, and you'll notice if you look at the passport, uh, for these beer, we have a passport that shows you what's in each flight. Um, you know, you probably close to half of them are going to have a beer badge of hoppy and, and why that is, is it's, it's a trend within craft beer. A lot of people tend to like the flavor that hops can generate. Uh, hops tend to have everything from a floral, uh, to a resiny, kind of like a pine, um, to a fruity or even a subtle spiciness. And, and maybe I'll back up. And I'll talk about why hops are in beer in the first place. So hops actually act as a natural preservative in beer, and they add flavor. So there's a resin within a hop cone that not only inoculates the beer with flavor, but also acts as a preservative to microorganisms and helps keep the beer um, from spoiling before you get to drink it. So I, I managed to bring in a couple hop palette samples for, for both of you to try. Um, one cool thing to think about with hops is think of them uh, like grape friedels. I'll use a beverage alcohol analogy. Uh, Sauvignon Blanc, white grape, doesn't taste the same as Cabernet Sauvignon, red grape. Right. So what I brought today is Citra and Saz, two different types of hops. And, and I mean, uh, Greg, Brett, you guys smell them. They smell quite different, don't they? Oh, they're dramatically yeah. different. One is very pungent, very, uh, uh, it's, it's like you're in nature. Uh, the other is though you're in a kind of a in a in a, in a citrus uh, plantation or something. Yeah, and that's that's great. Like you're in nature. That's awesome. Um, that's that piney resiny uh, aspect. And so, for a brewmaster or a brewer for a brewery, they they likely will use a, a blend of hops. And and when hops are added, are either during the boil process of brewing, or after the beer is actually done fermentation. And that that's called dry hopping. And when you add hops in the boil, you get bitterness. 
which bread I'm I'm getting maybe isn't necessarily your cup of tea. The bitter beer, the, the bitter, the more a beer is bitter, the less I want it. <laughs> and it, what we're seeing a lot of now, um, for example, with the Fernie Hit the Deck New England IPA from Flight Three of Coast to Coaster, is dry hopping. Mm. So by adding the beer, uh, adding the hops to the beer, pardon me, after it's fermented, you're getting kind of more of a subtle extraction of flavor and aroma, less so. Bitterness. It's not the necessarily the core at the core of the of the brew. It's it, it's an addition. Yeah, you'll get all the flavor without the bitterness. Some people really like the bitterness. Um, you know, it'll it'll put hair on your chest and take it off just as fast if you get up to hundred <laughs> IBU beer. Um, but some people really like a beer that maybe you can have one or two of and not not get palate fatigue. Uh, maybe a little more subtle if you are pairing beer with food, which we were talking about earlier. And that's when a dry hopped beer uh, really shines. And I know I'm throwing a lot of terms terminology out there. Uh, hopefully to kind of encourage your guests a little bit of self-discovery learning at finding out more about beer. Well, you know what? That's why craft beer is so great because there's something for everybody. You know, it, it's, it, when I, you walk into a liquor mart and you see like a thousand beers to choose from just in that in those couple of shelves, it's truly amazing. We could have gone for another half hour on this. Aaron, we'll have to have you back. Please come Sounds back. Good. Thanks for point, having me. Especially if you're bringing beer with you. Uh, Aaron Alblas is a resident craft beer expert with Manitoba Liquor Marts. He is one of their product ambassadors. And uh, he is here to talk about the Canadian craft beer revolution, Coast to Coaster. It's on now until July 31st, where you can experience craft beers from across Canada. Visit liquormarts.ca for more information. And of course, enjoy responsibly. Carolyn Clausen joins us next. I love those surveys where they ask, uh, do you text and drive? And, uh, you know, only 15% of people will admit to texting and driving when... Uh, there are statistics abounding that say 60% of people still text and drive. So clearly we're, we're lying to the pollsters and maybe even lying to ourselves. And I wonder if we can say the same thing about being average, being middle class. A lot of us see ourselves at middle class and we're not necessarily in that category. We might be upper middle class or lower middle class. And uh, that's part of the conversation we're going to have with Carolyn Claassen this afternoon. Brett McGarry. We were looking at the website Psychology Today yesterday afternoon, and they had a page. What they tend to do is uh, on the homepage, they'll, they'll, every day they'll have sort of a cluster of topics that kind of all work together. And one of them, the, the one that they had yesterday was define your success. And it had four articles. One of them was what success means to you. One was are you working for the right reasons. One was what you need to know about well-being. But the one that jumped out to both me and Greg and I'm not sure what this says about either of us, but the one that jumped out to both uh, to both of us was the headline, The Upsides of Being Average. You are probably less special than you think, and that's okay. Carolyn Clausen, first of all, what do you think of that statement? I love that line. Um, and I, I know people, when I was um, a new mom, people would sort of laugh at me because I would say, I'd, I just want my kids to be average. I don't actually want them to excel super much in one particular area because the downside is when you are above average in a huge way in one area, often then people work at that area to become even more and more successful in that area. And then other areas, important areas of development and socialization and skill development get ignored. And so I thought, I just, I want my children to have a good life, but I actually don't want them to be Olympic level anything uh, because I want them to be successful in life. And what success in my mind is about relationships and connection and being able at the end of your life to say I had a good life because I had I had the sort of life that I wanted to. I don't I didn't live with regrets. And I think often when people are so good at one thing, they end up living with regrets. Well and you know, there'll be people shouting at the 
radio saying, oh, you just want your kids to be average and, and uh, why aren't you pushing your children to be the best they can be? Even with that philosophy, you have an achieving collegiate athlete in your family, even with that philosophy. It didn't work out so well. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, do have a national level athlete in my household um, and it happened more by accident than by attention. Um, when my children were, um, I had very rambunctious preschoolers and we're always trying to figure out how to um, have them work their energy off, which isn't easy in the middle of winter in Winnipeg. Um, and so one of my guys, um, his buddy uh, participated in a gymnastics program at the University of Manitoba. And there was a big, and so he invited him to come along. So we enrolled them in gymnastics just for the heck of it to get, let them sort of run around and jump and all that sorts of things that you get to do in gymnastics class. And there was a sign there, which, you know, I've always remembered, and I'm not going to quote it perfectly, but it was something to the effect of there are thousands of clubs with hundreds of children all across the country in gymnastics. And every year, um, every four years, there's Olympics. And um, if four or six male athletes go to um, the the Olympics, there'll be one or two athletes per year then that get picked out of all these kids attending gymnastics. Uh, statistically, your kid is not one of them. So just relax and enjoy and have a great time in gymnastics class. And I love how it freed the parents up from pushing the coaches to get really, you know, sort of vicious with the kids to get to push them to get better, where everybody could go and they could strive hard, but it wasn't to achieve um, a level of success that really statistically was likely unattainable. Uh, and as kids are really good, then maybe one or two do rise up and you make some different choices. But mostly it was about reminding parents parents that this gymnastics class was about kids learning to connect with their bodies, learning to have fun with each other, and learning about how movement worked. Carolyn Clausen is a therapist with Conexus Counseling. You can read her blog and get more information at conexuscounseling.ca. We're talking about an article you can find on psychologytoday.com, The Upsides of Being Average. You are probably less special than you think, and that's okay. I just want to read the first paragraph and then get Carolyn's reaction here. Most psychological traits are normally distributed, which means that around 65% of people will have average intelligence, personality, memory, happiness, leadership potential, creativity, and so on. Unfortunately, this does not mean they are aware of it. Most people rate themselves as better than average on any desirable trait, which of course is a statistical impossibility. Carolyn, why do you think that most people rate themselves as better than average on any particular desirable trait? Well, I think there's increasing pressure in our culture to be exceptional. Um, as part of being lovable or see, being seen as worthwhile or being seen as worthy is to be exceptional and you want to be noticed. And one of the ways people feel like they can get noticed is to be exceptional. And so uh, it's funny. Um, one of the things we do at my office um, with all of our clients is we do something called feedback enhanced therapy and it measures clients um, to see, uh, it, it does a very brief inventory at the beginning of the session to see how they're doing overall in life. And then at the end of the session, there's a very brief inventory to say, how did you experience the session? And the reason why we do that is because research says that the most important predictor of therapeutic outcome is the quality of the therapeutic relationship as determined by the client. And so what we want to do is see how the client is perceiving the therapy and if it's working for them. And one of the reasons why we have to do that is because therapists consistently overestimate their ability and their impact with clients. And we know that 25% of therapists think that they're in the top 10% of therapists. 
And 100% of therapists think they're in the top 50% of therapists. And I don't think that's unique to the therapy profession, right? We often overestimate. And when we overestimate, we run the difficulty of not being vulnerable enough to look for ways in which we might want to be better, in ways in which we could be better, and listen for feedback that tell us when we're not doing as good a job as how we would like to be seen as doing it. And it creates some potential dangers and loss of opportunity for growth and good connection when we don't see ourselves as we really are. And so there is this cultural pressure to be really good at, you know, some things. Um, and rather than just saying, well, I'm pretty good at it. And, and what could I do to be better? What do you think I am? Um, and, and to just allow an openness to not have to feel like you're excelling at something. Well, on that honesty about where, where you're at, I think is commendable when you can reach that that point in your life where you understand where you are. But I want to tie it to our beer tasting experience and wine beer tasting experience. Over the years, there's been increased pressure to be more literate, whether it be about beer, but for a longer time, I think it's been about wine, you know, a sommelier and to have this accreditation and that accreditation, people will have wine journals, which I think is great. You, you know, you want to be self-aware. But we had a saying when I worked at Earl's years ago, which I think summarizes for for a lot of people the way it should be about life. And any a good wine is any wine that you enjoy. Hmm. And there doesn't necessarily have to be pressure involved with picking the right label, being knowledgeable about it. If you like it and it works for you, then it's a good wine. Isn't that beautiful? I think so. And it, it's so simplistic. And, and, and eloquent at once. Can I piggyback on top of that? There's a reason why Budweiser and Bud Light are among you know, beer snobs. Will look at those beers and say, "But there's a reason why they're popular." It's because most, the majority of beer drinkers can get down with those beers, right? Yeah, well, that's a good point. Well, I think we have to recognize that that that. Products are trying to stand out, right? And so they are trying to seem better than average as a way of making sure that people will buy them. But I think, Greg, you were right that any beer is the beer or any wine is one that you enjoy. That's the good one, right? And so in, in actually, interestingly, last night when my husband said, so what are you going to be talking about on the radio today? I said, oh, we're going to talk about, you know, the gift of being average. And he turns to me and then he's absolutely sincere, immediate, without missing a beat. He says, Oh, but Carolyn, you're anything but. You've got to know that you're anything but average in my eyes. And I'm like, cool. Because, and <laughs> yeah, laugh, Brett. The, and the point. <laughs> you're in trouble. Yeah, apparently. The point is, is that I'm not average to him. Right. Because we love each other. Right. And I don't need to be special or excellent or something other than who I am because it's my unique component of who I of all my little quirks that make me who I am, that make me somebody that he loves. And so it kind of takes the pressure off of being special because I'm special in his eyes. And I think we often underestimate um, that, you know, just like any wine is any special wine is the one that you love, that we can be content that when we are loved by other people, we are special. Just because you sell the most hamburgers on the planet doesn't mean you have the best hamburgers on the planet. Right. I'm going to continue our chat about the upsides of being average with Carolyn Clausen, who is a therapist with Conexus Counseling. The website is connexuscounseling.ca. We visit with her every Thursday at 2.30, and we will continue our chat after the forecast up next. I am what I am, and that's all what I am. I'm far like a sailor man.
That's supposed to be pause there, Popeye. Take a breath there, buddy. That uh, comes as a result of a text from one of our listeners who says, what about Popeye? I am what I am, and that's all that I am. Popeye the Sailor Man, and that's really what we're talking about is understanding where we're at. Sorry, just uh... (laughs) You're pressing (laughs) buttons again. Well, Carolyn's mic wasn't on, so I tried to turn hers on, but her mic is right underneath the all-off button, so I hit that button instead, and I turned everyone's mic off. That's okay. And then I panicked, and... uh... (laughs) Yeah, I'm a, hey, what can I say? I'm below average microphone operator. <laughs> might Although have, you would rate yourself in the top. Might it have something to do with the fact that you were tasting beers last half hour? No. <laughs> no, of course not. Um, I wanted to ask you this, Carolyn Clausen, uh, therapist with Connexus Counseling. We're talking about the upsides of being average. Is it, if let's say that you accept, okay, I'm I'm average. I'm not amongst the top tier. Is it not a good thing, though, in a sense, to believe in yourself, to believe that you are good? Because I'm wondering if you don't believe that you're good at something, can that not then lead to failure? Well, and I guess where I wonder is where did we go? Where is it now saying, yeah, I'm I'm average at that, and somehow that's not good enough? Statistically, Half the people are average, right? Half the people are above and half the people are below. You So there's going to be some things where you're going to be above average and some things where you're going to be below average. But there's, I don't think there's anything wrong with average. Like, And I think sometimes we, um, you know, in the, the 1950s, only 12% of college students described themselves as an important person. By the 1980s, the figure had risen to 80%. <laughs> it's a, That's a remarkable statistic. And I, I think... Why does why do people have to be you know especially important or especially above average? Where I think when you look at if I would invite your listener to think about the most special moment of the last year, it probably wasn't where you were excelling and people were giving you a standing ovation. It might well have been a, a dinner that you were having with somebody that was important or an opportunity to go on vacation and spend time in a place that you really loved. It wasn't about you know something superlative in, in celebrating a quality of yours. It was about a time of, of meaningful connection for you. And so I think sometimes people overestimate um, the significance of the average and and forget to find the beauty of that we would experience in an average moment. And um, when we look at Bronnie Ware, who wrote the book, The Five Regrets of um, the Dying, when she says, what do you most regret? It was, I wish I hadn't spent time working so much. I wish I'd spent more time with my family and friends. That people sometimes are so busy pursuing being excellent at something that they forget about pursuing the things that are important and meaningful. And I think we've come around, I think, in terms of work-life balance. Not for everyone, of course, but for most people, I think we're a little bit more conscientious of that. But even, uh, it, it talks about in this article about the idea of even desirable characteristics, ambition, sociability, confidence, conscientiousness, are problematic when exacerbated or exacerbated or taken to the extreme. So e- even the good things, too much of a good thing can be a bad thing. Well, that's a very Jungian concept is to say to look at uh, when you look at any quality, even a good one that taken to excess, there's a shadow side to it. Right. So if your ambition is a good thing and I'm all about trying hard. Right. And putting in a good effort. I'm not talking about being lackadaisical about life. I think when people put in a good effort, that's great. But if you're overly ambitious, what happens is you push people aside and you step on people to get to the top. 
and you pay a big price in terms of their meaningful relationships. Um, and I think ambition can, or, or you, you, you neglect your relationships, your marriage in order to pursue that ambition of getting to the top. And you realize that in success in one area, you've actually lost in a whole bunch of areas. Or when you're looking at, you know, I want to be above average in terms of sociability. Well, the person that tries too hard to be too sociable, they try so hard to be the life of the party that they end up being the guy in the center of the room that's, you know, trying to be the life of the party. And in, instead, he's just kind of obnoxious. Well, and that, that actually leads sort of into my next point here. There's a quote uh, from Dale Carnegie who observes, the surest way to antagonize an audience is to indicate that you consider yourself to be above them. When you speak... You're in showcase and every facet of your personality is on display and the slightest hint of braggadocio is fatal. So I, I kind of agree with that. The second you you show that, oh, I think I'm better than you. Often when people puff themselves up, it's um, what ends up happening is other people feel put down and nobody likes that feeling. And so often this effort to sort of make yourself look a little bit better than everybody else, it backfires. And what I also know is that often when people are puffing themselves up around other people, it's often because there's this internal need to do so because there's an internal something that says you aren't as good as everybody else. So you better talk yourself up so that you can show them otherwise. And what we, I think, most often find is that when we try too hard to look above average, I know that when um, I was um, a young mom I would. I was really important to me to be a good mom. It was the most important thing in my life was to do this well, to to raise my children well. But when my mom would be around, I would want to look like a really good mom to her, and I would try to be an above average mom. And what happened was, I got tense and brittle, and I would be shorter with my kids, and I would expect more of them. And it actually, I was a less good mom when I was trying so hard to appear like I was an above average mom. And when my mom would disappear, and I would just be the regular mom that I was, I actually was a warmer, more connected, more loving, more engaged mom. And so there's something about when you try too hard at something, it doesn't work. And when you just let yourself be who you really are, there's an authenticity to it. And authenticity is by its very nature, good quality. Well, and I think and that's where communication maybe has changed over the years as well. Uh, just from my point of view, and, and Brett, we see it all the time. We will have the odd guest that will, will we see it all the time. And then it's the odd guest. We, we see it from time to time where a guest will come in with reams of notes hmm. on something they've come to speak about. And to engage in conversation. Well, it's impossible to have a genuine conversation when you're sifting through your notes, trying to find exactly the right word, the exact right phraseology or statistic at the time. Once in a while, if you want to refer to that, that's fine to be precise. But the genuinely more engaging conversation takes place when it's without notes, when it's face to face, eye to eye. And we have that genuine interaction comes off as authentic, comes on and comes off as unrehearsed. Those are the types of, I think, engagements that, that we appreciate. And those people with all the notes, it comes from a good place, right? Sure Where they it want does. to have an awesome, above average, even perfect <laughs> interview, right? Right. Uh, but what happens, it, it gets so stiff and it gets so hard that you miss some of the magic of what happens when people are just chatting back and forth. Carolyn Glosson is a therapist with Conexus Counseling. The website is connexuscounseling.ca where you can read her wonderful blog. And Carolyn visits us every Thursday at 2.30 on Mackling & McGarry on 680 CJOB.
Typical Winnipeg experience here. When one of our guests walked in the door, we looked at each other. I know you from somewhere. It took us a few minutes, but we sorted it out. Greg Mackling, Brett McGarry, uh, we've known each other for a while as well. In fact, Brett, you were the first person from CGOB to call me on that fateful day when you told me that I was going to be involved in that infamous talk idol competition. It's almost nine years ago now. It's been that long? Ah, it's yeah. been a long time. Hey, uh, by the way, tomorrow, the uh, first Blue Bomber home game of the season. If you don't have tickets, get them now. It sounds like they're moving quick. Our broadcast begins at 5.30. Kickoff is 7.30. Bob Irving, Doug Brown, and a cast of several bringing you uh, tomorrow night's action between the Winnipeg Blue Bombers and the Calgary Stampeders. And of course, don't forget Wade Miller's guarantee. If you don't get off campus, if you happen to park on campus for Bomber Games, if you don't get off campus quicker than you ever have, he will, in fact, buy you tickets to the next game against the Toronto Argonauts. In studio with us right now, we have Trish Cooper, who is the communications coordinator for the Winnipeg Arts Council, and Monica Giesbrecht, who is the principal of HTFC Planning and Design. And we're talking about a news release that we got a few days ago from our friend Jason Savixe at HTFC. It says, art and design tours to connect people to hidden and beloved places. So this starts... Saturday, and it runs until August 20th, so a few weeks to enjoy this. So why don't we start with you, Trish, from the Winnipeg Arts Council. What is going, where, where can people find these hidden and beloved places? Yeah, thanks so much for having us. Um, we actually have eight tours, uh, eight walking tours and three bike tours. There's 11 tours that started um, back in a few weeks ago, so it goes all summer, but we've partnered with, with HTFC on two of the tours, because uh, for uh, their planning and design. And um, yeah, they're really fun. There's like lunch hour tours for 45 minutes. There's some where you get on a bike for a couple of hours, some at night where a lot of the artworks are um, beautiful at night and light up. And then there's some that are kind of further away or people can just sneak out of their office for 45 minutes and walk around downtown and get a guided tour. So um, yeah, if you go to the Winnipeg Arts Council website, um, you will find they're all free. You just have to register so we know if you're coming. And also, and then we have your info in case it rains or something like that. But yeah, they're a good time. Well, I'm looking through this magnificent booklet, Explore Winnipeg's Public Art. And there are a lot of people who, you know, uh, will debate the merits and the value of public art. I'm not one of those people. I, I think it's uh, essential. <laughs> it's essential that when we build things, not only utilitarian structures uh, that we, you know, that we need to use in a fashion, they should be beautiful, but also public art. I mean, Portage in Maine, you look at those uh, Leo Mall installations, courtesy of the Richardson family at Portage in Maine, and uh, one that jumps out at me at Assiniboine Park, the iceberg or whatever mm. it is, right? I mean, it's... It, it, it's in the middle of a field, but but there's something that draws you to that. It's distinctive, and and it adds. I don't know. It's intangible, and that's okay. That it's intangible about what it does to us. Is that fair to say? I think that's super fair to say. I think if you're talking about it and debating why it's there and imagining what it's about, doesn't matter if you get it right. The same way as the artist or not. The the point is you're experiencing the city and thinking about the place you're in. And thinking about why that piece of art is there and what it means. That's Monica Giesbrecht. She is principal at HTFC Planning and Design. And Winnipeg is a city of hidden neighborhoods, right? Hidden gems. And there's a lot of hidden gems in terms of art in this little booklet. For sure. 
Yeah, we have a, a public art guide. Since 2004, there's been over 50 public art pieces that have been commissioned by the Winnipeg Arts Council, but there's way more than that that are all over the city. Those are just some of the ones to see. And like Monica said, I think it's like there's there's uh, pieces I've walked by all my life and been kind of like, oh, that's cool or that's what is that? And then getting a, a guided tour is really neat because you actually get to sort of understand exactly what the artist was trying to do and, um, you know, a little bit of the background about what they what they're going for. So, Monica, where does HTFC Planning and Design come into this partnership with the Arts Council of Winnipeg? Well, we have been working with the Arts Council for a very long time in various capacities. Uh, we volunteer and sit on their board a lot. Uh, but we are often, uh, we're landscape architects and planners, so we are often developing the public spaces that make up the fabric of the city. Streets, parks, uh, plazas, open spaces where these artworks go. So the partnership works in a way where we have an idea that a piece of public art would be great in a space or where the Winnipeg Arts Council wants to develop a piece of art in a space we're working on in conjunction with the city or others. Usually they're on public property, so city property. And we work together to integrate the art into your overall experience of a space. Lots of people don't realize it, but every space you walk through outside a building is designed by someone. So you're, you're putting in the planning process, you're making sure that there is room, not just for, the, as Greg talked about, the utilitarian needs of the whatever the property is that you're designing and building, but that there's room for art as well, for, for beauty. Yeah, and it's not even room. It's essential. It's integrated. It's just part of that experience. If you know, to, you go to any city in the world where you feel like it just feels so good, that's because people believe in connecting not only utility but also the culture of the place, the spirit of the place, and something that resonates and is beautiful that, that inspires you to live there. So I think Winnipeg's coming a long way in that regard. Well, and I think we started out the right way when we built that beautiful legislative building. I always say it's my favorite building on the planet. But if it had not been planned so that we could see it from far away, it certainly would not have the same impact as it has when you walk up or drive up Memorial Boulevard. It's got that amazing mall in front of it. It gives you a vista point of view that you wouldn't have. And there's a reason why you can only build buildings so high, so close to that building. It's so that we can highlight its majesty. That's totally true. We're going to continue our conversation with Monica Giesbrecht, who is principal of HTFC Planning and Design, and Trish Cooper, who is the communications coordinator with the Winnipeg Arts Council. We are talking about these tours that are on Hidden and Beloved Places, July 8th to August 20th. And we'll get some more information on the tours themselves. We haven't actually really gotten into the specific tours and where which part of our city you will get to explore. So we'll have, we'll dive into that after we look at traffic and weather next. We're talking about celebrating and exploring public art in our city, and there may be public art pieces that you may not even realize are public art pieces. And uh, our guests are here to tell us about this. Trish Cooper, communication, communications coordinator, Winnipeg Arts Council, and Monica Giesbrecht, principal at HTFC Planning and Design. I live near the intersection of Highway 59 and the perimeter. So they're building this new interchange, right? Massive construction. Well, 
I'm noticing that they're integrating these different designs in the concrete. Not a big deal on its own, but I tell you, if all of a sudden they were gone, I would notice that they were gone. So there is an attention to detail in a lot of these uh, utilitarian projects that we might not even realize is there, Monica. Yeah, and I think what you have to do is thank the city for that, actually. They've become a very forward-thinking organization in the idea that they can integrate for a very small cost public art into major pieces of infrastructure. So all your BRT lines and the stations uh, at those BRT lines are going to have integrated public art related to the history of transportation and community building along those lines when they come out. So yeah, those little things make a difference, don't they? Yeah, I think they do. And we were pointing out in the beautiful booklet here, Explore uh, Winnipeg Public Art, uh, the Disraeli Freeway. The brand new Disraeli Freeway, they repurposed the old piers of the bridge across the Red River into an active transportation bridge. Tell us about the uh, artwork that's been integrated into that piece of infrastructure. Yeah, so that artwork was completed by Bernie Miller, I believe, and a partner who I can't remember. But it's uh, digital uh, photographs that have been pixelated so that they're lit up. And when you drive down the uh, vehicular bridge from afar, as you're driving, you historic images of the bridge and the railways pop up. It's really beautiful. And really, it's only just from the backlighting, right? It's just backlit. Yeah. It's, and, and, it, and it's dimpled metal, basically, at different depths that allows uh, different levels and layers of light through. It's perforated. Uh, it's If you think of an old dot matrix printer or how your old newspapers were printed, black and white, like photographs look grayscale just based on that, that's what it is. And then it's lit from it within like a lantern. Fabulous. Yeah. Trish Cooper with the Winnipeg Arts Council. There is a tour. Now, you've already had a couple. Uh, One was on June 7th, another June 28th. This Saturday is the next one at 7 o'clock. It's happening downtown. Tell us about this tour that's coming up this weekend. Sure. Um, It's... um, we're partnering with HTFC because of we're going to be exploring some of the different spaces that they've designed. So there's five different art pieces and then three HTFC projects. Um, so the, we were just talking on the break about um, Empty Full at the library. That is, uh, we're going to be talking about that. Um, Heaven Between, which is another piece on Broadway. Um, the Bike Racks on Broadway. Millennium Library Park, that redesign. There's, um, there's several pieces there. Sentinel of Truth, Empty Full, Waterfall 2, Untitled, and The Illumination. So all around the library, there's incredible uh, pieces the um, Manitoba Hydro Place and DIY Field we're also going to go to. That's so, at uh, Central Park? That's at Central Park. And that's um, that's one of my favorites, too, when I first kind of came across. A little, little more I learned about public art was just how interactive it is. And there's kids climbing on it and pressing, you know, and it, it's beautiful at night. It's fun during the day. And just that the intention behind it was... Um, to figure out a way to play as well as just instead of just looking at something beautiful or enjoying something, it was like actually getting on it and playing. It seems like um, a really great way of using the if you're going to have art in a park, it's kind of a perfect way of doing that. The other interactive piece of artwork that I love is at the United Way on Maine. Um, you can actually use your hands to set the lights on the building, uh, yeah. on the pole. And it's um, based on Braille, I believe, and a, bo- a 
particular uh, letters and messages come up based on how you manipulate the poll. You should go figure it out. You, I had you. no idea. <laughs> I, I, like uh, the lighting as well in and around MTC, between MTC and uh, the Centennial Concert Hall. I, I didn't see it in the booklet, but right, th- that's, that's set off by can, noise yeah, and, 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 and sound. And, oh, amazing stuff. Yeah. Well, There's two pieces of public art going up on Lily this week as part of the Exchange District uh, renovations that we're working on. So stay tuned for those. They're in partnership with WAC. Well, you can get more information on these tours at winnipegarts.ca slash guided public art tours. And as well, uh, HTFC uh, likely has a website, I would imagine. Monica? Yeah, just type in htfc.ca and we'll pop up. Monica Giesbrecht is the principal of HTFC Planning and Design. Trish Cooper is Communications Coordinator of Winnipeg Arts Council. And, of course, if you have any questions about this stuff, you can just send us emails, brett at cjob.com or gmac at cjob.com. Your forecast and sports in two minutes. I'm Brett. He is Greg. We're going to speak to the mayor of Nipawa in a moment about an unfortunate situation happening there. But we do need, have some housekeeping to take care of. we got to get rid of some tickets. we got stuff to give away. Fury of a Dead Man is playing tomorrow, Friday, July 7th at Club Region Event Center. We have two tickets up for grabs. Today's question, what does Theory of a Dead Man have in common with the band Everclear? 204-780-6868. Oh, the lines are already full, so oh, PAC people dropping off. What does Theory of a Dead Man have in common with the band Everclear? We will find that answer momentarily. And in the meantime, Jeff Forte will answer those calls at 204-780-6868. Let's switch gears now and head, Greg, to Nipawa. RCMP are stepping up patrols in Nipawa after racist graffiti appeared on their Welcome to Nipawa sign. They replaced the old sign that said uh, population 996,000 short of a million, which I thought was super clever. Uh, It's a little bit more modern now, but it's been defaced, was over the weekend. Photos provided by the RCMP show a a racial slur targeting the Filipino population sprayed on a sign welcoming visitors to town about 200 kilometers west of Winnipeg. That's on the Yellowhead Highway. And Mayor Adrian DeGroote of Nipawa joins us now. And Mayor DeGroote, we've uh, visited in the past to to highlight uh, the massive population explosion in Nipawa. Uh, Nipawa is a changing community, uh, but I'm certain that this isn't something uh, you were uh, hoping or thinking would be part of the deal uh, of getting bigger. Not a bit, Greg. Not a bit. Uh, it was certainly disappointing to, uh, you know, to see it on on uh, Sunday as I was driving into town. I was, took out some some brush out to our burn area and driving in, and uh, I said, "Oh no, what, what's this? What's this?" You know, and I didn't have a chance to read it. I thought, "Oh, okay, I'm going to go home. I'll come back out." And then I got bombarded with phone calls and and <clears throat> checking in to see what was happening, and uh, you know, trying to set a course of action to. You know, either to uh, touch it up, uh, get rid of it, uh, and we eventually uh, put a tarp over it temporarily in order to, uh, you know, just to uh, take it out of vis- high visibility. This is really unfortunate. You know, we, this isn't the only uh, instance of incidents of uh, vandalism, particularly racially motivated vandalism that occurred mm-hmm. over the long weekend, a long weekend which is supposed to be a celebration. Do you, do you know what, 
has, or what may have led to this? Like, what is is there a, sort of a growing sense of anger in your community? What's happening there? I, I don't sense that uh, one, one bit. Uh, you know, like in talking to people, uh, you know, um, you know, listening to people, watching things, what they are said. Uh, yeah, you get uh, various uh, opinions and you know things like that, and that and that's normal. And uh, but I think this is just a case of ignorance. It's not. Uh, I don't think it was racial in the sense that you know I hate uh, uh, I hate that race. Uh, I think it's just a case of just ignorance. Uh, you know, somebody who doesn't understand uh, just you know wanted to deface uh, public property, and there's been some defacing of private property as well. Not necessarily with the same type of slogans and things like that, eh? But it's uh, it's, it's really unfortunate. Uh, you know, in, in any community to see these kind of things happen. Mayor DeGroote, give it. You know, as far as tension is concerned, I don't see it. Uh, you know, I was at a car dealer today uh, getting a new uh, set of keys, and, uh, you know, there's people there talking, uh, you know, buying cars. That the days are normal. Mayor DeGroote, uh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but uh, just for those that are unfamiliar with Nipawa and its uh, population, its makeup, and, and the change that's taken place uh, in the community based on uh, the presence of, of one uh, community uh, leader slash uh, employer in particular that has uh, seen an influx of foreign workers. Yeah, and that kind of causes some tensions, you know, and the, and the tensions aren't racial. The tensions are uh, real, you know, like, so there's crowding in the schools. So we, we have to put up uh, uh, closets in order to uh, accommodate the fast-growing. Uh, we're disappointed that the province didn't uh, put us on the list for, you know, expansions that are, uh, that are needed. You know, so those kind of things. Housing is the same thing. You know, we, we've been unable to keep up to, uh, to housing demands, although the market is very, uh, uh, very um, good. Uh, but these things we are trying to address. So those things, yeah, cause pressures, and sometimes they, you know, they irritate uh, people. Uh, but uh, you know, the ignorance should not come out in in a in a public fashion like this. Because defacing property, no matter what you do to it, you know, whether it's a dot or whether it's a slogan, uh, that's that doesn't define us. This this does not define our community. The community is coming together. An overwhelming uh, majority of our our community is very welcoming. Uh, yeah. Yes, there's a large population uh, boom, but uh, you know, like it's uh, and it's some growing pains uh, come along with that. Mayor Adrian DeGroote, uh, Mayor of Nipawa, uh, I understand that your community is known as the land of plenty. First yeah. of all, is that true? Well, there's, yeah, there's plenty of land, uh, but it's uh, it comes from the uh, uh, Nipawa is a, um, a Cree uh, Cree word, and uh, you know, which means plenty which means abundance. Uh, the soil here is, uh, you know, the agricultural community is very, uh, very active here. Uh, you take a look at the soils, and it's, it's just unbelievable. I'm an immigrant myself. I come from Holland, you know, so I know a little bit about soils and things like that and agriculture and flowers and, and whatnot. So, yeah, it's, it's really like I'm sitting on my deck right now, and it's just beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's green. It's lush. Uh, you know, we're in, uh, in a bit of an escarpment, uh, you know, like in a hilly uh, around here, so yeah, it, there's uh, the, and there, we do a spin on it. There's plenty of opportunity. Uh, we're a growing community. We want to uh, keep on growing, so we're putting into place. We're looking at housing development and things like that. So yeah, it's uh, it's a land of plenty. 
What what are the strategies before we let you go that that might be implemented to reduce? Uh, I don't want to use the word tension because you say you know that, that that's not necessarily the right word, but to reduce uh, these sorts of incidents, how do we uh, make sure that we understand if that's what it is—a general lack of understanding of one another? How do we yeah. break down these barriers? Yeah, well, it's communications. It, it's really talking to each other. One of the things, the message that I that I put out uh, on Canada Day was sit with someone you don't know at a picnic table, at a lawn chair. You'll, you'll talk to them. When I greet the immigrant uh, community or new, new hires, I have the opportunity to, to meet everybody. Uh, one of the messages the message I give is communications. We, this is a safe community. We want to keep it that way. You know, so this kind of, you know, yeah, it's unsettling. Uh, we're hoping that it doesn't, uh, you know, get out of hand. Uh, you know, and so we're talking to people, and we're making sure that there's engagement and trying to do that. We're also looking at, uh, you know, subdivision land. You know, we're allocating uh, certain land. I was just talking about uh, the possibility of another subdivision. The growth is not only the immigrant community. The growth is also uh, seniors moving into our community. Uh, it's, it's, quite a, it's quite dynamic uh, the, as far as the growth is concerned. But really, at the end of the day, Greg, it's, it's talking to it, each other. It's understanding. You know, all the, all the different cultures have had, you know, slurs and names. You know, I'm called a squarehead sometimes, Dutchy. Uh, you know, all kinds of little things. That, you know, it doesn't bother me anymore. It just, you know, that's your ignorance. You know, learn about it. Well, Mayor Adrian DeGroot, uh, thank you so much for taking some time to uh, join us today to talk about this unfortunate incident of racially motivated vandalism. Uh, I just wanted to also let you know I've been slowly exploring southern Manitoba through golf, and I do intend, I believe, in the second week of August, I'm hoping to head out to Nipawada to Excellent. visit your golf course. So I'm trying to encourage uh, like a, a, tri, a tri-town golf uh, tournament, you know, like in Gladstone and Nipawada and Minidosa. I haven't got any traction on that yet. Oh. The last time we were talking, it, uh, I think we, we, I overheard you talking about some of that stuff. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> you did hey, indeed. Hey. Yeah, we'll have to come. We'll have to come west. We're talking about going east. We might have to come west. Thanks, Adrian. Appreciate this time as always. <laughs> no problem. Take care. Bye. All right, Adrian DeGroote is the mayor of Nipawa. We have to very quickly congratulate our winner. We found a winner, Greg, of the Theory of a Dead Man tickets. The winner is Murray Smith. The question today was, what does Theory of a Dead Man have in common with the band Everclear? And Greg, I believe you have the answer. I do, and I was supposed to have it in audio form, but I left it at my desk. (laughs) As I'm apt to do from time to time. Everclear also had a song named Santa Monica. We listened to the song three times, looked up the lyrics, doesn't even reference Santa Monica anywhere in the lyrics, but they both have Theory of a Dead Man and Everclear songs named Santa Monica. We could just do it uh, like... Sorry. Perfect. (laughs) Traffic and weather. And we'll hear from Richard and Julie. Oh, Jeff Forte, quick on the draw. I am still living with your ghost. Lonely and dreaming of the West Coast. I don't want to be your 